Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. So uh, as we get into the message today, let me just first of all acknowledge, uh, over here we've got some live painting. Did you notice that? Life painting happening. That's Mike Oglesby. Uh, so everybody say hi to Mike. Mike, say hi to everybody. <laughs> he has earplugs in. Um, Mike is a, a member of the Vineyard and an incredibly talented, gifted artist. And I asked him this week if he would partner with me in creating a visual illustration for us. So we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into the morning so you don't have to, to give a lot of energy into trying to figure it out. We will talk about it. So uh, Mike's just going to paint while we talk. So we are in the book of Jonah. And uh, we have just two more weeks. Today and next Sunday are our la- is our final series in Jonah. And as we get there, um, today we, we pick up in chapter four. And I would say this is the least known part of the Jonah story. Jonah is a pretty popular story, beginning as a children's story. Uh, it's reached into pop culture. It's a very well-known story. Most people's knowledge of Jonah ends at chapter 3, which is really a bummer because the whole point of the book of Jonah is actually what happens in chapter 4. It's a thread that's been woven throughout the book, beginning in chapter 1, but the culmination of it happens in chapter four. I remember I grew up in, in church and Sunday school. Anybody grow up in Sunday school? If you grew up in like the, like the early to mid 70s, like I did, um, we had we, Sunday school stories were depicted with flannel graphs. Yeah. Does anybody know flannel graphs? Okay, I can't guarantee this. I'm like 99% sure there was never a flannel graph created for chapter four. But we're going to go there today, so don't despair. Uh, We're going to be in chapter four. So if you're just joining us, let me give you just a little bit of background so that you're up to speed with us. Um, Here's what's happening in the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. A miraculous and highly unlikely, let me just say that again, highly unlikely awakening, a spiritual awakening has happened in the city of Nineveh. we wouldn't, you know, we, we think about when, when there's a, a new move of God in a place, we try to have language for that. How do we describe this? Sometimes we call things an awakening. Sometimes we call it a revival. Sometimes we call it an outpouring. We're trying to give language to something that really can't be contained. But I would say what happens there, it's not really revival because in order to be revived, you have to have once been vived. And, and so a lot of times when we talk about revival, we're talking about a people who have a knowledge of God, but who have drifted from it in focus or in practice. And God brings them back to him in a significant way. What's happening in Assyria is unprecedented. Nineveh of all places, this is a people who are so far from God. We, from a, again, I'll just say from a human point of view. From a human point of view, we would never look at Nineveh and say, wow. There is a door open there for repentance. These people are just so ripe. They're just, they're just right on the edge. They just need to be nudged forward, and they will just repent. They're so hungry for God. 
No one from a human point of view would have ever said that about Nineveh. In fact, God himself, when he describes Nineveh, he says, these are a people who don't know their right hand from their left, which is a figurative way to say they are spiritually blind. They're spiritually illiterate. And so what happens here is, a, is nothing less than a, a miracle. It's a sovereign outpouring of God's mercy and compassion. It's a miraculous awakening of their hearts, not only to want to repent and turn towards him, but to even know how one would repent, what to repent from, what would that look like? And so in last week's passage, though, that's where we ended with last week as we saw that all of the people from the greatest to the least, and that's not a value statement, that's a matter of positional power. From the king all the way down to the people and their animals, dogs, cats, horses, cows, everybody. There's been whole-scale repentance. And we saw last week that, that um, it, it started, it actually had two appearances. There was the outward trappings of repentance, of a spiritual awakening. And the outward trappings were this. It was like the king said, um, the king got off of his throne, statement of humility. He put on, he took off his royal robe. He put on sackcloth and ashes, which are the clothing uh, of grieving, of repentance, of mourning. He put on sackcloth and ashes himself. And, and then he declared a, 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 a corporate fast, an absolute fast throughout the nation. Okay, we're talk, so we're talking no food, no water for people or for their animals. So this is, this is a scale of repentance we've not even really seen in Israel. So that was the outward trappings, but there was something that happened inwardly too. And the inward reality is that people turned from their evil ways. In fact, what the king says, and this is an amazing statement coming from a pagan king who who previously had no, I mean, these are a polytheistic people. They're not a monotheistic people who worship God. They have no knowledge of God, but this, this king says, everyone must turn from their wickedness and the violence that is in their hands. These were people that were violent and they celebrated their violence. Their art forms were depicting their violence and celebrating it. But the king says, we have to turn away from that. And so last week's passage, God saw what they did. And it doesn't say that God saw the, the, the outward actions of like, you know, sackcloth, ashes, starving the animals, taking away the dog's water dish. Like that's not what God saw that made him change what he had said he was going to do. He saw that they changed. Let me, let me, let's just read what God said last week. This is where we ended with last week. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What we see is that God pours out mercy instead of judgment. He pours out compassion instead of justice. And what we're going to see is that's always his preference. We're going to see that today. It's always his preference. So, Um, That brings us to, so last week we left off with God's response. We never saw Jonah's response until today. So today we pick up with Jonah's response, and on the front end, you would think that he would be happy about this, that he would be, um, you know, he would be ecstatic and overjoyed as a preacher. I mean, I can tell you as a preacher, if I preached any sermon, let alone an eight-word sermon, his was incredibly succinct. His sermon was this, it was 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it, eight words. And wholesale repentance breaks out. Like everybody repents, they turn to God. You'd think he'd be ecstatic about that. That's like 
That's like winning the preaching lottery. Due to technical issues, about five minutes of Pastor Trevor's teaching was lost. We apologize for this interruption. Ask a 21st century audience in America, what's the most well-known verse of scripture? Everybody's like John 3.16. You go back to the 7th and 8th century BC in Israel, and you say, what's the most well-known scripture? They're going to say, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. They're not actually going to say that because we didn't add the numbers until much later. Basically, the numbers... But they would have talked about this verse. They actually would have known it by heart, which is why Jonah knew it. If you went to a football game in Israel in the 7th or 8th century BC, you know what you'd see? You'd see people holding up signs in the end zone. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Actually, no, no, no. You wouldn't see them holding up a sign that said Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You'd see them holding up a sign that said Exodus 34, 6. Because people really like the first half of it. We have a video from Bible Project that actually beautifully and succinctly describes this passage. We're going to watch that right now. The Bible is a collection of many ancient Israelite scrolls. And together, they're telling one unified story. Now, if you look at the second scroll, Exodus, you'll find two important sentences. They're actually so important that they're referenced and requoted over 20 more times within the Bible itself. It must be important. What does it say? Yahweh, Yahweh, that's God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I can see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations, and he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now, this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the Ten Commandments. The first two are... Don't give your allegiance to other gods and don't make any idol images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. All right, and then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you miss something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement, 
as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes. And so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with and you'll see. They're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El Rahum Dachanun. And the line overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words. Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And how is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? By forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, But God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. I love those guys. Guys at Bible Project are just amazing. So you can see why this was such a significant revelation of God, because it happened at such a significant moment in Israel's history. You think about this, like, you know, they they tell the story about how Israel came out of the, 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 they were delivered out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And basically what happens at Mount Sinai is they enter into a covenant relationship with God. The closest thing that we might be able to compare it to would be like a marriage. A marriage is like a, a covenant relationship, a covenant agreement. And that's basically what the people have done. God has said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And the people have said, we're going to be your people. You're going to be our God. God said, I do. People said, we do. And then Moses goes up the mountain to get the directions for building the tabernacle. And while they're there, they become unfaithful to the vows they just made. So you can think of it as like 
this is during the honeymoon, they become unfaithful. Or more, maybe more likely, it's like they haven't left the altar yet. They're still at the very place where they just said, we do. And now they're already being unfaithful. And so here's this promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. And God said, I'm going to use this as a people to bless the whole world. And here they've entered into a relationship with God and they've already blown it. What is the hope? If, if in 15 minutes they've already blown it, what is the hope for this? And what happens over this? If you want to read in this more detail, because we're, we're skimming over it really fast today. Exodus 32 to Exodus 34. Those three chapters tell the whole story. And God basically puts Moses into a, a, a situation where he's now interceding for the people. And he's saying, God, don't, don't destroy this people. Deal with them according to your mercy, not according to your justice. And so God gives him this self-revelation. Self and, and it's in the context that God says, this is who I am. This is at the core of my being. This is who I am. This is who, who I've always been. And this is how I will always be for every generation. And so that revelation, again, that's why it becomes the most repeated and most well-known Hebrew scripture. Because people found themselves in crisis quite often. And, and a lot of them looked pretty similar to this, where they, they, they started off promising to do the right thing, and then they stopped doing the right thing. At least 27 times this verse gets quoted or referenced throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me give you one example. Actually, I'll give you two examples. The first time it gets quoted back to God, the very first time somebody uses this, it says, remember what you said to us back there? The very first time it happens is in number 14, verses 17 through 19. This is less than a year after God first gave the revelation. And what's happened in that subsequent year is they've built the tabernacle that, that they were supposed to build, and eventually they've moved on, and they've left Sinai, and they've moved to the promised land. And as this happens, they're at the brink of the promised land, and before they go into the promised land, they send in 12 spies. Okay, one, one person from every tribe to go out. It's kind of like a reconnaissance operation to go in and see the conditions of the land, to see the conditions of the people that are there. And they send the 12 spies out. I think they were there for 40 days and 40 nights. There's lots of 40 days in this. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. Nineveh gets 40 days. In this case, the spies go in for 40 days. They come back. Two of them bring what's called a good report. It's a, it's a report filled with faith. Two of them come back. It's Caleb and Joshua. And they say, you know what? It's even better than God described. Everything we've been wanting, it's, they, they say it's like a land flowing with milk and honey, which is just a figurative way to say that it's a place that's abundant, it's prosperous, it's, we can thrive in this place. It's a fertile place. We can, we can make a life here. Two of them say that. The other ten come back and they say, um, yeah, yeah, it's a fertile place flowing with milk and honey. It's also flowing with giants. We're like grasshoppers to them. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. And so it's called an evil report they bring back, a fear-filled instead of a faithful report. And the whole congregation, they listen to these 12, and they, they, they listen to them, and they have to decide who are we going to listen to. And guess who they go with? The 10. And it gets really ugly. They say, would that God would just kill us in the wilderness. He brought us here to die. He brought us out of Egypt to bring us into this land to die. Would have been better for us to just stay and die in Egypt or to have died along the way. Hey, you know what? Let's get a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. 
And when they ask for a new leader, the question is, are they asking, are they replacing Moses or are they replacing God? Yes. This is, this is a, a rebellion. What's happening is outrageous. God tells Moses that he's going to destroy this people. He says, all right, Moses, you heard, what, you heard their response. I'm going to destroy this people and I'll start over with you. I'll make a, new, a great nation out of you. And really what he's doing, again, he's, he's providing Moses the opportunity to intercede. And so Moses comes back to the very revelation that God gave them less than a year ago. This is what he says, Numbers 14, verses 17 through 19. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. You catch, Moses knows, I, I, I highlighted a few things because Moses knows that God doesn't just clear the guilty. That he can't, in his justice, he can't just ignore people. He can't just ignore our violence, our rebellion. And yet, he nevertheless asks for God to be merciful. God set them up for that, right? The way that that whole passage is laid out, even the emphasis on God's mercy and compassionate and gracious to a thousand generations, and yet won't clear the guilty to the third and the fourth generation. It was set up to, to lean into God's mercy. That God holds these two things together, but, but basically the invitation is, call out for my mercy. Moses doesn't know how God's going to do that. How does God hold these two things, seemingly opposite things in tension, mercy and compassion, and yet God says both of these are fully who I am. I am just and I'm merciful. I'm compassionate and I'm, and I'm true. So Moses doesn't know how God's going to do it. He just, he just leans into the mercy and he says, so I know, I know that you can't just ignore this, but please do. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Deal with us according to your mercy, not according to our faithfulness. The self-revelation, it gets prayed back to God in multiple places, sometimes by individuals. If you read the Psalms, you'll hear that, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, especially 34, 6. 7 doesn't get quoted quite as much. It's always people quoting back to God. God, you said you're gracious and compassionate. You said you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would you do that again today? And so sometimes the psalmists are praying. Sometimes like David, there's, there's times where David finds himself in crisis, whether it's personal crisis or national crisis, and he calls back to this passage. I call this God's anchor passage. An anchor passage is something that, that you can go back to time and time again and always find living water there. This is God's anchor passage. Listen to where David prayed in Psalm 86. He said, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your servant, give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. At least 27 times this gets quoted. Circle back to Jonah and the very scripture 
that has been used for generations in Israel to call out to God in times of trouble. The very core of who God is is the thing that now has him angry. He's hot, he's lit, because there's a spiritual awakening happening, a revival happening. It's one that Jonah would have welcomed. I think if this happened in Jonah's church, synagogue, tent, I don't know. If it happened in Jonah's community, he would love this. He would be so glad that God was moving in a fresh way and bringing his mercy to bear in the circumstances of human living. But it's not happening in his people. It's happening to a distant people that he doesn't like or agree with. And so what's his posture? His posture is not rejoicing, it's resenting. Instead of celebrating, he's critiquing and he's criticizing. And he's angry at God. What Jonah really wants is to keep God in a box. He wants God to to do things in ways that make sense to Jonah, in the way that Jonah would do them if he were God. You know what Jonah's doing? He's doing what the Israelites did at the mountain. When they made a, a, a golden calf in their image, that wasn't a new God. They said, they said, this is Yahweh. This is our God. They remade God in their image. Jonah's doing the same thing. He's trying to remake God to be a God that he understands, that does what he would do, a God that, that, that operates within his preferences, his desires, what makes sense to him, his experiences. And God's not interested in that. God's, from the very beginning, going back to Abraham, God was interested in blessing all the peoples of the earth, not just the people who were the ones who were supposed to extend that mercy. God's interested in stretching Jonah's heart to embrace his mercy for other people. So here's the thing. Jonah's not a formula. Jonah is a story about one spiritual awakening, spiritual revival. It's not a formula. It doesn't always happen like this. I find it interesting because oftentimes church leadership, we're praying for spiritual awakenings. We'd love to see God do a unique thing in our time, in our day. We have songs about it. We sing, you know, what you did in the past, do once more. What you did before, come and do once more. We sing about those things. And sometimes we talk about what are the conditions that are needed for revival? What are there are the things that we can do on our end that make it happen? And I don't know that there's a pattern. There's not a formula. I mean, if you look at in Jonah, it's not because the people were so hungry for repentance and crying out to God that God did this. And it's certainly not because of the, the preacher. He's, he, this happens in spite of Jonah, not because of Jonah. But, but what we do find in Jonah is that when God does something, and, the, and throughout human history, there's spiritual awakenings, there's spiritual outpourings, there's spiritual revivals. When it happens, people have a choice how they respond. And, and basically it's, do you celebrate or do you critique? Do you rejoice or do you resist? We heard a quote this week from, from uh, Pete Gregg talking about a, a, a spiritual awakening that's happening right now over in Kentucky. And he said, Pete Gregg's an author and pastor. He, he's in England. But he said, when it comes to reports of revival happening somewhere else, I would rather err on the side of being gullible than being critical, than being cynical. So let me tell you what's happening right now. Right now, as many of you are probably aware of this. If you're, if you're on social media with other Christians or if you read Christian news sites, you've probably heard about this. There's a, a spiritual 
uh, revival happening at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, Lexington, Lexington area. And it started with a chapel service on Wednesday morning, February 8th, so 12 days ago. And here's, here's a description of what's happened just from, um, this is from Kevin Brown. He's the president of, of Asbury, not Asbury, um, of Asbury University. He said, at the completion of a regularly scheduled chapel service on February 8th, 2023, at Asbury University, students lingered to pray, to worship, and to share. They have not stopped. And moreover, have been joined far and wide by hungry men and women across the world who desire to seek the Lord in this space. Since the first day, there have been countless expressions and demonstrations of radical humility, compassion, confession, consecration. This is not just the outward trappings, it's inward change. Consecration and surrender to the Lord. We are witnessing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Started February 8th, it's still going. That chapel service that started Wednesday, February 8th that morning, it hasn't stopped. A lot of the students, the majority of the students that were at that initial chapel service, when it was over, they left because that's what you do when the service is over. You go to your next class. This is a required chapel service. But some stayed. Why did they stay? Because something God stirred something in their hearts, and they stayed, and they began singing songs, they began reading scripture, they began praying, they began gathering in groups and praying with one another, people began repenting of sin. This is a miraculous and sovereign work of God that's not orchestrated by people. And, and this, the report of anybody, no matter who you read, and so, so what happened is then more people started coming back to join them, and more came to join them, and more, and so it's been going on ever since then. And the report from, from almost anyone who goes on site, whether you talk to a, or you read the report of a student or a visiting pastor, because people have been coming from other universities, from other churches, everybody wants, and, and this thing has expanded to where it's not just at the university, but it's, it's, it's rippled over into the seminary next door. It's rippled into other churches in the community, to other universities around the nation. And, and, and they're live streaming this, and it's just, it's an awakening. But everybody says, you know what? It's not about one person, and it's not manufactured, and it's not, it's not hyped up. It's just this authentic move of God. And it's, caught, it's pulling people into intimacy and wanting to repent of things that are not right, ways that they've distorted God's image to themselves and to others. And so people are repenting, and it's this beautiful thing. They're, the university, the plan is that they're going to hold the, the final public service of this chapel, this extended chapel, 12 days now. Tonight's going to be the, the final night of the public one because what they want to see is they don't want to see this focused on just what's happening there. They want to see it ripple out. This is, what, this is a statement from the seminary. This is Timothy Tennant. He's the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. This is the reason why both the university and the seminary have not canceled classes. In previous, there's been previous revivals that have happened. Well, there's one in 1970 that happened. They canceled all the classes for several days. This time they decided to handle that differently. Here's why. It's not because we're in a business as usual mode. Far from it. There's talk of little else in every chapel, in every classroom, in every hallway conversation, and I suspect in every home and apartment in the community. The desire is not to, to stop this. It's to mainstream renewal into the very fabric of our lives so that we are transformed right where we live and work and study. We all love mountaintop experiences, 
but we also know that it must be lived out in the normal rhythms of life. We have to live into this desperation for God to do what we cannot do. We have to live into transformed relationships. We have to live into new patterns of life and worship. In short, we must embrace what it means to really live as Christians in the midst of a church culture which has largely domesticated the gospel beyond recognition. We will know that revival has truly come to us when we are truly changed. What did God say when God saw how they changed? We will know that revival has truly come to us when we are truly changed to live more like him at work, at study, at worship, and at witness. As a team, we were praying. We've been praying during our, our morning times of prayer. And we've, as we heard about this, we've been praying into it. And one morning as we prayed, I felt like God gave me an image. It actually started with an image that Judy shared. She, she said this. She was using like a, like a picture that was being poured out. And as I was just praying into that, I realized that I had this you know, kind of image that I believe was from the Lord, that, that if you take a pitcher and you, and you begin pouring it into a vessel, the first thing that happens is that vessel gets filled up. Right? The first thing that happens is the vessel gets filled. But if it gets filled and then you keep pouring, it begins to overflow. And the longer you pour, the further that overflow goes, the further, the further that, that water reaches. And, and so the prayer, my initial prayer was, God, keep pouring out until this travels as far as you want it to go. As people come from other places to see what's happening, as people make pilgrimages because they hear you're working in this place, may it go home with them. And may that water continue to spread and spread. Keep pouring it out as long as, as, as you desire to see that spread. But then the second part of it was that, you know, if you, if you pour water into a vessel until it overflows, the overflow will go, it'll travel. But if it hits an obstacle, what'll it do? It goes around it. It just, go, it just goes around it, and it just keeps going. And so you, you can resist it, but it's just going to travel around you. And so this imagery that Mike is working on for us here is, actually depicts this. It depicts this outpouring. And as the vessel is filled, the water goes out. But what you see is that there's, there's places where it doesn't saturate and penetrate. There's places that aren't changed or transformed because they're resistant to it. And so instead, the water just flows around it and keeps going. Mike, is there anything you want to add? Do you, do you want to? Here. Artists love talking <laughs> on mics. Yeah. Um, uh, Trevor initially uh, uh, told me about the, uh, this vision, and um, it was sh shared to him, and he shared it to me. And... and um, so then I, uh, um, I, you know, jumped on board. You know, I'm not, I'm a, a studio artist, and so get out in front of, uh, you know, an audience is a little, it's a big Holy Spirit step. But um, so I, uh, as he was talking to me about it, I started sketching it out. And, um, and like he had said, there's this vessel coming from the heavens, and it's an outpouring of God. And I, what I saw onto, onto the earth, but also onto the church. Mm -hmm. And the, I imagine the vessel, um, you know, the hands of the people of the church. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in reaching out and open to God's love. Mm -hmm. And as it pours out into the hands, um, it overflows 
through the fingers and, and just floods the nation, you know, of God's love, our witnesses of, to God's love. And, um, yeah, and I didn't quite finish it. I had a, I had, I put a lot to it. So, <laughs> but I, uh, I'll probably um, plan on, um, definitely finishing it up. Uh, but uh, that was what I, what I saw. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. awesome. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And um, we're going to close, actually, with a song that is based on this very passage. It's this passage we've been talking about, this God's anchor passage where God revealed who he is and said, pray into this. We're going to sing that song, but I want to connect it to what's happening, to this this. Thing that's happening right now in our time and our place. It's distant. It's, it's over in Kentucky. I don't know if that, is that 500 miles? I don't know. Something like that. But you know what? I, what I've loved, what I've found so refreshing about reading the reports is everybody says, this is not contrived. It's not manipulated. It's not hyped. It's just this gentle presence of God that is so, so amazing that no one wants to leave. And people that do leave, they just want to come back. But the idea is that, is that we would experience that, be filled, and then we would take it with us into transformed lives. We're going to sing that song again today. And uh, what I would ask is that each one of us would answer the question that God asked Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be... And, and it's not saying that everyone's angry, but do you, do you like what's happening? What is your posture? God's asking us a question. Do, do we want to see his mercy poured out in other people and other places? Do we also want it here? My prayer is that we would be a people who, if, if what's happening in Asbury reaches here, that we'd be a people who are receptive and rejoicing, not a people who are critical or critiquing. They would say, God, do it here too. Our city is also desperately in need of change. Our city is desperately, we're desperately in need of change. Would you do a spiritual awakening in us and a revival in us? Would you pour out your spirit here in a powerful new way? We can't manipulate that. We can't make it happen. God is at work in here and we always want more right? More, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. And so I just want to invite you to search your own heart and talk to God about what's going on in you. Maybe you're experiencing conflicted emotions, concerns, hopes. I want you to talk to God about that as we worship. And, and let's say, God, you are merciful and gracious. Let me do one last thing, sorry. One last thing. Let me share with you that that last slide, this is the last slide in that, from that Bible project video we watched. It talks about the Lord being both gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, yet he won't always, yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. In the Bible project video, they set up this tension. They say, this passage includes a real tension about God's nature. How can God be both just and merciful? And, and, and it's not solved in that passage. 
And, and so whenever people prayed it back to God, they understood they should pray it into that first part. They didn't really know how God was going to resolve the second part. We don't find out about that until Jesus comes. And Jesus on the cross brings together God's mercy and God's justice. And God pours out his justice and God himself absorbs it. Rather than his justice and judgment being poured out on people, God absorbs it himself so that what he can extend is mercy. This always pointed towards Jesus. All those times it was quoted in the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures, it was in faith that one day God would resolve that tension. Church, God has resolved it. And each one of us can respond to that and say, Jesus, thank you that what you've done can be applied to my life. That because of what you've done, I can receive mercy instead of justice. This is why we can sing this song. So would you stand with me? If you're able to, to would you stand? And let's sing this song. The Lord is gracious and compassionate.
we sing that one more time, just the voices? Can we do that? You should probably lead that, not me. <laughs> Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Praise the We believe that this is who God is. It's who he's always been. It's who he will always be. God gave this self-revelation so that we could pray into it. We could ask. At any point in our lives, we can ask personally, collectively. We can ask God to be merciful and gracious to us. We believe that God's mercy is here this morning in the in to heal. And so this morning, if you came with needs, if you've got stuff going on in your life that you would like a brother or sister to, to pray with you and, and just partner with you in that way, we would love to do that. We're just going to make some space up here up front where you can, you can come and you can pray. And uh, our ministry team will come and pray with you if you would like that. Um, we'll just, we'll give you space to, to pray yourself. But as we leave here today, this is all about not just what happens here, it's about what happens when we scatter. We gather to scatter. What's happening in, in Kentucky is an amazing thing. And the heart of the leadership is to say, let's, let's not try and contain this in a place. Let's see it overflow and ripple out. Let's let it ripple out in our lives. Let's be that vessel that is, first of all, filled and transformed. And let us let it overflow. Jesus, would you continue to pour out your spirit? Would you intercede for us as the greater Moses, as the greater Jonah, who didn't just say, take my life in order to, to not extend your mercy. Take my life to extend your mercy. Lord, do it here. Do it in us. Lord, would you touch us? Any places of resistance, places where we need to repent, we invite your presence, we invite your, your spirit. Would you fill us to overflow as we go into our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, our relationships, our households. Or take us as a transformed people. Pour out your mercy. Pour out your grace. Lord, lead us to repentant hearts that we might be the light that you've called us to be in the city. We ask all of this for your glory. We ask it for our joy, our, our deepest abundant life and truest joy. And we ask it for the sake of our world. Amen. If you'd like prayer this morning, we have some words for prayer that are right up here on the screen. It's the thing our, our, our ministry team sends today specifically. Um, so we have uh, grafting pruned branches. We have reflux. 
maybe a hiatal hernia, congestion, uh, pain in joints and muscles, burning feet, and this word, he's shaking you up to go. If you see yourself in there or if you came with any prayer needs, we'd love to pray with you. Apart from that, go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.